welcome to Kissing the Cod. I am Janet Sheriff, your host, and we are back again with Mr. Peter Dimmel, part two. Hello, Peter. Good day. How are you today? I'm wonderful. How are you doing? Can't complain. We're, we're on the right side of the sod. That's always a good thing. Every, every day, right? <laughs> yes, that's for sure. We had such a, a great conversation last time. I didn't realize how long it was going. So um, we're just going to pick up on where we were chatting, I guess, two days ago, right? Yeah, we had Bundy. Yeah, that's right. So I wanted to start with um, the picture that we put up on the notice um, is of you out in the field. And you, you were telling me the story of the photo. I, I, that's a, I, I love it. Yeah, it's, it was interesting. It's, uh, it, the, the, you know, it's interesting how, how this business, uh, how you enjoy it certain times. Uh, there's always tough times, but there's days where you say, you, you understand why you do it and why people do it generally. Uh, two years in a row, this, this, uh, that picture was taken out on, a, on an island called Barhaven Island, which is at the north end of Placentia Bay, which is in the ocean um, in, in uh, Newfoundland. And uh, myself and uh, three, four other people uh, have an interest in, we stake some claims out there. We call ourselves the Newfoundland Prospecting Syndicate. It's just a loose alliance. Uh, we're all supposed to put in a certain amount of time and we pay our own costs and that sort of thing. And uh, we have a, this, we stake this property out on Barhaven Island and uh, two, uh, two prospectors involved, two geologists, myself and, and another young fellow works with Marathon Gold, Dylan Abbott, Norm Mercer, who's the president of the Newfoundland Labrador Prospectors Association and uh, two Sweet Apples uh, prospectors from Gloverton. Um, anyway, Two, two Septembers in a row, we have gone out to this island. Now this island, we go from Garden Cove. So we drive from St. John's to Garden Cove. We get on a, a 39 foot long liner and we go down to the thing, to the area. He takes us in, drops us off and then he goes, what does he do while he's waiting for us? Well, he goes <clears throat> scallop, scalloping. So he, he just goes up and down the, the area and, and, and takes scallops. And he picks us up later on and we come back and go back home with it. In the meantime, he's got these fresh scallops that he charges $12 a pound for. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> Two years in a row. We've, we've, and they've been perfect days, flat calm and sun coming down. And, and you, you're going down in Placentia Bay and this is called the inner passage. And it's just beautiful. Okay, so anyway, that's that's the context of it. So uh, myself and Dylan were we went one way, and the other guys went to another area. So that's the way we divided up. And we had taken the longer we'd gone the longer tour, longer area. I'd been in there the year before, but we hadn't gone around the island, uh, around that pond. So Dylan went one way, I went the other way, and uh, we. <laughs> I, I I went. There was a chunk of quartz on the side of the of the of the uh, uh, pond. I went. I looked at it, took some samples and stuff, and then I went to get up and on the bank. And the bank was maybe two feet high, something like that. And I climbed up on it. I got on a knob. And if you know Newfoundland, we call it go with me. It's it's just really hard walking. I stepped on this knob and for somehow I slipped backwards. Of course, when I slipped backwards, I had rocks in my pack sack 
and it took me backwards. I swung around somehow. I ended up upside back on my back in the pond. <laughs> I got completely, completely soaked. <laughs> I mean, I was still my, my upper body, most of my upper body was still on the beach, but the rest of me was in the water. And I guess it, how in the heck did I do that? I mean, it didn't hurt myself, luckily, because I mean, you know, these things could be things. And when I met Dylan, I went the, uh, when we at the end of the pond, when the picture was taken, I was just drying out. The water was running off me. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, it didn't really interrupt the, 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 uh, the day, but it was so nice. It just, the, the, you know, it, it, when you do that, it was a tough day. That's a hard walk too. Uh, up into that area, a lot of bog and a lot of things. And if you walked on bogs, you know how hard they are. And a lot of this go with these stuff, as they call it. And we follow, as much as we could, we follow moose trails. Moose are really good at making trails through the through this uh, really tough country there. So uh, anyway, that, that's the story of that, that picture. So <laughs> you can tell I'm a little bit, uh, I don't know, wet anyway. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, I loved it. When you sent it, I, that, I knew that was the picture even before I had the story. <laughs> yeah. What is go with me? Uh, it's it well. It's it's a Newfoundland term. Uh, it describes sort of really hard country. It's a mixture of what we call we call Labrador tea, but it may not be. But it's humpy ground. It's it's ground that has humps in it and it has stuff growing everywhere. Sometimes a lot of small spruce. Uh, we have a term for spruce, which I won't use right now. But it 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 comes up about waist high. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, we have a in the in our in our geological fraternity we have a term for that here, but I I won't mention that right now. Anybody that's listening to this that's been here knows what we call it. Um, but the it, it that whole type of thing. Uh, there's rocks underneath it. There's holes in that stuff, and it's just very very difficult to walk on. It's just I come out of some of those areas sometimes. Uh, and, and I get cramps because I'm not drinking enough, not, you know, taking enough fluids. And it's just different on your legs. You're just not the same. Walking a kilometer and that is probably like walking 10 kilometers on, on regular ground. It's, it's just very, very tough. And uh, it, I, I'm not sure where the, name, where the term came from, but it's G-O-W-I-T-H-Y, go with it. Go with it. Okay. Yeah, I've written it down. I, I love the um, unique dialect uh, in Newfoundland, um, and it, it throws people off that that haven't been there or aren't from there. Um, but it's it's got the most amazing terms. And used one last time we talked about uh, an accordion shape. It was Harry. I can't remember what you said. Harry Harry Hibbs, yes, famous accordion player here in Newfoundland. He and died. And a while ago but uh yeah very very famous and that is what you use to describe uh how the land yeah well that was that was hank williams uh professor at memorial uh well known he's actually in the mining hall of fame uh we managed to get him in there because he was one of the first guys uh uh, in the in the academic field that recognized that the that newfoundland first of all was subject to these plate tectonics. Plate tectonics is just a relatively new thing, probably in the 70s, uh, late 60s, early 70s, when it was re recognized. Up until that time, that hadn't been recognized. People always looked at Africa and South America, uh, North America, et cetera, and sort of said, gee, doesn't that look like you could take Africa and move it over and fit it together? 
And that's essentially what you could do because what's happened is it's they moved apart. But that's happened, of course, all over the world. Harry, uh, uh, Hank Williams took that information and looked at it in the context of, of Newfoundland and then, and then said, okay, here's what we've got. So this is this part on the Eastern part, as I described the last time, uh, called the Avalon zone, which is Morocco down to, through Newfoundland, right down to the, uh, to the Carolinas. Then the other side was a North American stuff. And some of that included the Dalradian through uh, up into uh, the UK. Uh, and, and also, and everything in between was the proto-Atlantic Ocean. And it, what happened is it just went, it opened, it closed, it opened, it closed. He described that as like an accordion when you're going like this, as, as, a, uh, as a, the Harry Hibbs effect. And I, you know, again, that Hank, Hank's gone a few years now too. And he was, a, he was a great guy for that sort of thing. He used to lead um, tours across this island and people came from all over the world to take those tours because he could demonstrate so well how the geology, how, how this geology and plate tectonics fitted in. And uh, he would have been really interested in the latest discovery, certainly in central Newfoundland with the gold, because that had obviously hadn't been known at the time. Wow. And he was at Memorial? He was at Memorial University, yeah. Yeah, well-known well known professor. And like I said, we managed to get him into the Mining Hall of Fame, uh, mainly on that basis of the fact that he was one of the first to use plate tectonics and put it in the context of mineral exploration and how important it was to mineral exploration. Interesting, interesting. And, and, and came up with the hairy hips. <laughs> hairy hips effect. <laughs> I love yeah, it. it was, <laughs> yeah. We were, when we were talking last, um, we kind of left a couple of questions hanging out there. I just wanted to go back to a bit. One was, I brought up, which was hard times coming uh, in the financial markets. Um, the thing that gave me, you know, it has me, my interest peaked is whenever there's a depressionary time, there's gold discoveries and booms. And I, I was bringing it up because I hope that's what happens with Newfoundland. That, you know, as hard times come, Newfoundland has a, and always does have a way of benefiting from it. Yes, I mean that's that's true. The only the only negative side of that, I looked yesterday, and I have I don't follow the gold price very much, but I yesterday I noted it's down to about seven seventeen thirty, which is you know low for what it's been in the last while, and it's it's I think due to these so-called recessionary times that are coming up. Um, the the problem when if gold drops too much, what happens is the interest in gold in gold development, exploration and development drops off also, which means you can't raise money for it. Mm -hmm. And Newfoundland would be subject to that also. Um, so I'm, I am a little bit concerned about that. I think, I think right now the companies that are working here are fairly well, um, they're fairly well funded. Uh, it's not like in the old days, where, like I said, like we said last time there, uh, you know, 300 grand was a big budget. I mean, most people here now have millions and that's something that hasn't happened for a long time. So hopefully we can ride out two or three years of a, of a bad time. But what it does do, it, it does make people hunker down more. It makes them uh, drill less. 
uh, it makes, as I said, if you can raise flow, you'll always raise some flow through, uh, but you won't raise necessarily the hard dollars. And, and that is something that can cause companies to fail. If they don't have hard dollars, they can't, uh, they can't keep. Usually what happens is, is the main people behind it start putting money into it just, just to maintain the company. So I'm a, I'm a little concerned with that. I think the potential is there. Certainly if the money's being spent, uh, I noticed uh, Lab Gold had a, a news release today, which uh, one of their better intersections uh, K9 had one today also, which was a very good inter, uh, good news release. Uh, huge intersections, I think they 127 meters of 0.61 grams, which, I, you know, that's a lot of gold. I mean, it, uh, you know, I think Detour Gold was mining uh, about half a gram of gold. You start getting intersections like that, that shows that the the amount of gold that's here in Newfoundland that really hadn't been uh, noted before it is there and uh, every time i see those things i mean everybody said well that's you know not but it, it, the global amount of gold in 127 meters of 0.61 is is fairly substantial yeah the market gets all uh excited about high grade and um you know big numbers and they don't uh, always appreciate that you know a gram per ton is a mine if you've got the right amount and uh consistency helps right so a yep. big step like that is 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 good it's just not the the flashy stuff that they but that's that's i'll take it you know yeah. with, <laughs> i will too <laughs> <laughs> um the other oh, my light just went out oh, that's okay um the other question that we kind of started and then didn't really finish was um we we're talking about how in the past, so many people went into the bush or into camps and stayed for a long time. And it's changed now with the shift work uh, to be more accommodating to family life. And, and does that uh, impact the industry? In a, I, you know, it's obviously good and bad. Uh, good for families, uh, slows down the, the process. But I just wanted to give you a chance to talk about that a bit. Well, I, I think, like I said, it was something that had to be done. We would have very few people in this industry uh, in, in today's world yeah. if, we, if we as an industry didn't uh, re realize the value of family and uh, the value of, of uh, just people actually not getting burned out. And it's so easy to get burned out. I, I, I've experienced people. I've been in the field with people. I mean, some people can get burned out after a week. They, if they're just not, they're not in the right thing, they're with the wrong people, that sort of thing. Um, in, in today's world, this two in, two out makes, to me, good sense because nobody gets burned out then. You do your two weeks in, uh, you good, do good work, you're concerned, you know, you work at it. Yeah, you look forward to getting back out and getting back with your family or your girlfriend or your wife or whatever it is. But point of it is, is, is that you, you're not burned out because you're there and you, you know, you're going to be home for two weeks. And then, you know, you can do things during that two weeks time that, that, you know, it, there has to be things that have to be done. You have to look after your banking. You have to do this now online stuff. You can do it a lot more easy, but it's still not the same as being out. So I think it's something that's been realized for a number of years uh, that 
was required to be done and the industry has has gone to that situation i mean it's going to be a scattered time that you've got to uh, fly somebody in for a month because it's just not worth bringing other people in and things and but there are real people that will do that but they won't do it for the rest of their life and that's the thing about it you want to retain people you have to make it so that they have uh, a good life uh, a they can make good money yes and they can also have a really good family life and life outside of geology yeah i worked with a guy who once he went in, into a camp or out in the bush, he wouldn't want to come out. And we could see that he was getting burned out, but he wouldn't leave. We'd actually have to go and get him and send him home. And, um, and one time we found he had snuck back and he was, he was looking at, he was looking at adjacent property and we found him. It was like, no, you, you must go home. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, you know, it's funny over the years, I haven't run into too many, but I have run into some that really get bushed fairly, as we call it, bushed very, very quickly. And uh, it, it, you know, you, I don't care who you are after you've been there for a while, you, your, your intention, I mean, you, what do you do when you're in the bush? I, I've said this to my wife way, way back. One thing about being in the bush, you don't really worry about anything else, at least in those days, because you didn't have, uh, you didn't have Wi-Fi, you didn't have, uh, you know, cell phones, you didn't have any of that. When you went in the field, you were in the field. And all you did was you, you got up in the morning, you had your breakfast, you went out in the field, did your work, you came back, you plotted up your work, because there was no such thing of having computer stuff you plotted up by hand most times on on maps that somebody had given you and and you know using your compass about where you were and this sort of thing and and that's what you did and then you got up in the morning you did the same next morning you did the same thing and that's all it was it was a very simple life but that simple life after a couple of weeks starts to grate <laughs> you know you think geez I'd, I'd love to go out and have a beer something like that <laughs> not to say that some of the camps didn't have beer and then they did but um, that, but you know, it's just not the same, and 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 that's the recognition of that. I think has changed our industry uh, much, much for the better. You know, I I was working in a mining camp my first time, and I'd been there a few days. I I and I missed my kids, and um, and I asked one of the guys that had been in the industry twenty to twenty five years, like, how do you do it? And he said, well, when I come to work, I I just work for two weeks. I work and I do the best I can and I focus and, and, and when I go home, I just do my family and that's all I do. And I do the best I can and, and it worked for him. And I, I thought it, it made, but it doesn't work for everybody. Right? No, no, it doesn't. And, and I mean, that's going to happen. Some people do not want to be in the field for that one. I, I run into people like that after their first summer and say, I'm not going to do that anymore. I don't want to do it. Now, most people, uh, certainly my age and that, don't spend that much time in the field. Um, and, you know, usually your first eight, 10 years, you're, you're, you're quite a bit field oriented. But as you go beyond that, you become the managers. And the managers do not tend to be in the field that much. However, they still get in the field, which is something they want to do <laughs> because they want to keep it in. I have talking to Tim Froud yesterday again, and he's heading down to, to go sit on a drill for a couple of weeks. And he's yeah. the CEO of the company. Good for him. <laughs> that sounds yeah. like him. 
<laughs> yeah. Well, but he, he likes it. He really enjoys it. You know, now, you know, you can argue about whether a CEO should be sitting on a drill. Uh, but if you can't get anybody else right now, and we have we have five drills going right now, we being Silkman, uh, three at Moosehead, one at the uh, uh, Kraken, which is the lithium project. And this this where Tim's going to be is the Great River project, which has great potential gold project. So he, I spoke to him yesterday. We have a news release out today on some of the Moosehead drilling. And that's what I was involved with him on yesterday. And he headed out to Grand Falls after that. And then he was meeting Steve Stairs and they were heading down there, first of all, to go to Kraken to have a look at it. And then we're heading down to Great River and go in. So, you know, that, uh, it, it, you know that's what some people want to do. I, at my age, it's too much. I, last time I was on a drill job, I said, no, that's, I, I really can't do it anymore the same way. We need young people in there, right? Yeah. That doesn't mean I can't go look at a drill or you know, look at core. But it means that I, I, the, the actual physical part of being on a drill, is getting, it really gets tough as you get older. Yeah. Well, so you bring up something that makes me think about sort of the, the, the toolkit of what a geologist needs. Um, and there's, I think it, it's, it's harder to get the young geologists out in the field as long as you used to go. Um, and they're, they're, so they're, there's a lot more work on artificial intelligence and database and, and all of these other things. How do you see all of that fitting in with the necessity of being on the ground, like looking at the rocks? Like, is, is that, do you see the toolkit expanding? Well, it definitely is. I, I, you know, I, I really stayed away from the AI stuff. I, I'm, I figure I'm too old to get involved in that and, and to really, I don't really need to understand. I mean, I understand what it's doing. It's taking data. Uh, it's doing iterations of that data. I mean, essentially what we did with the brain, yeah. but doing it, you know, huge, hugely uh, faster. I mean, the, the, the speed of the, uh, the thing. But again, it's only as good as the data that has been provided. And that's always saying garbage in, garbage out. They've always said with things like that. Um, so it, it, it's, but it is the future. Those, it's AIs in everything these days. And uh, it's, it's in the stock market. And actually that's probably one of the things affecting the stock market because you, you, get, you get these, the AI playing these little, little bumps in the, in the thing, which affects the, the, the overall stocks and uh, can really hurt, hurt some companies. Um, but, you know, the bottom line is, is the, the students coming out today, the young geologists coming out today, they're much more computer literate than we ever were. Uh, they are very familiar with all of the requirements, the, uh, the GPS situation, the, the, um, and AI is part of that. Uh, they are, they're just right on top of that sort of thing. Uh, most places now, when they're logging, they log into into uh, uh, computers. Uh, I never logged into a computer. I always did it by hand. I would enter it in afterwards in the evening, go into into Excel or something, and put it in there. I'll give you an example about how how things have changed. Uh, most people are using this program called MX, which I'm not familiar with. I know what it does, but uh, I know Newfound Gold's using it, uh, Sokomage using it, etc. MX would not provide a drill lock. It didn't have the capability to provide a drill lock. 
it could give you information on it. And, and when we asked about it as more manager type things on it, we were told, well, it wasn't required. Nobody needed all the data is in the database. Why do you need a drill lock? Well, the reason you need a drill lock, well, number one is the government asked for one. <laughs> so, and that's a good reason to have give a drill lock. And the second thing is, is that's what allows prospectors to take data that is otherwise unavailable to them and make something out of it. If you can get a drill log that says, here's the geology, here's the uh, assay results for that, then anybody can use that. You don't have to go through a database. Not, not, the database can still be uh, accessible to you if you want it, but if you're not familiar with it or you don't want to use it, then you've still got something you can use. And I, and I think that's something that they, they tend to forget. Now, uh, MX has developed one, at least uh, I think for both. Uh, I don't know whether Newfound did their own. Sokerman, uh, we went back to MX and said, we want a data, uh, we want a, a drill log form that we can take out of MX. All the data's there. We want to be able to take, take that out and make a drill log out of it. And they did provide it to us and we now have that. But it, it to me, that was just an example of how that was driven by people that were not in the field and didn't see the value to having a drill lock, right? So, it, you know, those type of things, it, affect, it affects everybody that works in this business, particularly the prospector. Yeah, and, and I, I'm going back to, you would handwrite uh, at the drill site uh, log and then put it in the computer later. Yeah. I'm going to make a, a, a leap and a question. Does that mean you look at the rocks more? No, I don't think necessarily. Uh, you know, most, most companies now photograph all their core or in, in the case, I know what Newfound does. They, they, they do everything on it. I mean, it's, it's amazing what is done with drill core now, and that's not unusual in the industry. Um, you run it through different spectral uh, things and you get data that we could never get you can't see a lot of alteration for example in uh, drill core is not you can't see it but you if you do a spectral analysis of that core yes you can pick it up uh, and that spectral analysis 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 can say if you are close or if you are further away from where mineralization could be once you once you make those associations so it, it is it it is I, it is there but whether I haven't actually seen, uh, I haven't seen too many people actually logging lately. Uh, the Sokoman, I was in the Sokoman uh, drill facility there on uh, the week before last, and uh, we were mostly we were uh, touring, so we actually took them away from what they should be doing, which was logging core. <laughs> so unfortunately, and that's something I always used to hate as a as a as a project geologist when the bosses had come in because they disrupt your whole routine right <laughs> but it, it, it was one of those things and i kept saying to the guys look appreciate appreciate what you're doing here but look you know don't let us take well you know what can you do you're the bosses <laughs> you know so but it but it is now I, I think i think uh, certainly on the Sokoman side, uh, looking at it i know the guys that are logging are doing it in great detail even though they're logging into a uh, uh, into a uh, computer. Uh, most of us, the way we log anyway, and I've logged this for years, is you, you log with a grease pencil. 
you you mark on your foliations, you pick out your know, circulate bits of EG if you see them and you do you do those type of things and you note, you know, I, I used to write little notes on the core so that when I was writing it up, I could actually actually do it. So I go ahead and I do that over, you know, over a five, 10 meters or something. And then I go and, but that was a written log. So it was much more detailed. Uh, first thing you do when you go look at a core thing, you just take notes down about, you know, intersection. Okay, we went from Mafic to Felsic at 103 meters or something, that type of thing. Right? So, uh, but no, I, I think, I think most, I think most of the geos uh, logging today still look at it very, very carefully, but they have more data available to them once yeah. that's done. Right. A combination of old school and new school. Yes, that's right. Yeah. 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 Um, last time we talked, we never got into Rambler. No. <laughs> I was, right. That was one of my one of my big things. I wanted to talk about. I wanted right. you to talk about Rambler. <laughs> well, that was a very interesting time in my life. I'll tell you. <laughs> yeah, it's. Uh, I'm going to let you go. <laughs> well, okay. It's. It's interesting how things happened at the time uh, that Rambler, uh, Rambler closed in 1982 uh, when it was consolidated Rambler. It was owned by Casey Irving, the Irving Group in New Brunswick and uh, closed in 82. Uh, the government declared it undeveloped in about, I think about 87 or something like that. And the, uh, and that meant then they went and they asked for bids on it to, to work on the property. That, and uh, the one of the, and one of the reasons it closed was the Rambler North property. They were mining down, and they were actually right at the boundary of the Rambler North property. And they couldn't go any further. They were down about twenty seven hundred vertical, twenty seven hundred feet vertical, and still had massive sulfides. Still had all the ore there and that. And and but they couldn't go any further essentially. And they couldn't make a deal with a company called Selco, which was there at the time. So uh, anyway, it closed. Part benefit of, of people that don't know the commodity. Oh, it's gold. It was copper. Sorry, oh, sorry. it's a copper mine. Yeah, and uh, it it operated from the in the '60s. It started, uh, and it went to '82. Uh, they they mined a low lower grade stuff, one percent stuff. But in the early '70s, they hit a zone called the Ming zone. Which is three and a half, four percent copper with really good gold values. I mean, they could get you could get up to ten grams of gold in the in the in the massive sulfide copper deposit, copper zone, right? So really, really expensive, good stuff, and made them a lot of money at that time. Anyway, closed in '82. They was declared undeveloped in about '87. Five years later, uh, they had, government asked for bids, and a company, a group called the Rambler Joint Venture, got it. Tech was involved with that, and. Uh, and a couple of other junior companies that were put the money up. Uh, Tech was more of an advisor than anything else, but they uh, they went for five years. They had a five-year thing on it. So that took them to 1992. And uh, they actually discovered a new zone called the Ming West deposit. And that was uh, discovered at surface uh, and it, it was essentially parallel to the Ming zone. Uh, but they didn't, they couldn't find enough to, to go on with it. So they, they essentially, after five years, they turned it back to the government. And it began, the government asked for bids. Now, <laughs> around that time, I, I was working with Corona Corporation. We closed in 1992 in, in uh, Newfoundland. And so I, you know, I, I didn't have anything. I became a consultant as such. And uh, one of the 
places I had claims of my own was in the Bay Verte area, in the Rambler area. Uh, and, and because I'd worked with Corona, Corona Corporation had got, had acquired the Rambler North property. So I did a deal with, with Corona where I would uh, auction the, the Rambler North property. Uh, I also had a call from Tony Ransom, who was my boss at the time. He was by that time in home, the home state had taken over Corona. Uh, they were in Vancouver first, but then he closed everything in Canada, moved to home stakes office in San Francisco. And I got a call from Tony one day and he said, uh, Peter, I got to tell you, we own, and, oh, and Corona had, that's right, missed this part, but Corona had bought, because Corona was had been involved with the Pine Cove deposit, had taken that to about 200 and something thousand ounces. Uh, there was Nugget Pond had been found at that time. And then there was a bunch of other ones in the same area, small gold deposits, maybe totaling five or 600,000 ounces. And the thought was, Corona thought, maybe we could put together a central milling concept. So they bought the mill, the Rambler mill uh, from, the, from, I guess, the Rambler joint venture. Anyway, they, they acquired it. Uh, and the cost was like 1.5 million, something like that, 1,500 ton a day, but complete a wooden mill. I mean, it was a beautiful mill, but it was it was old and it had some had collapsed uh, a little bit in one area over the grinding bay. Anyway, so they owned the mill, Corona owned the mill, and uh, Corona owned this Rambler North joint venture or Rambler North property. I so I did a deal with them for the Rambler, uh, the 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 uh, Rambler North. I did a deal with them. I had claims in the area anyway, and I had a call from Tony this day, and he said, look, I want you to, we want to sell that mill, that central milling concept fell through. Uh, I want to sell the mill. You know, how about if I give you 30%, whatever the price is, we give you, you know, so I think if I can sell for half a million, you know, I make 150, da, 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 da. So I went in to see a buddy of mine in Bayvert, Sam Blagden, who's well known in, in mineral exploration and, and mining, actually. He was involved with most of the mines in Bayvert, the asbestos mines, uh, a lot of other things involved in exploration. And he was a real, everybody knew Sam. Anyway, I went in and I was talking to him one day and I mentioned to him about this. He said, well, mill. He said, well, we can't let the mill go. I said, well, no, I guess we can't. That's right. And I said, the tragedy because somebody just take it away it would disappear and then we wouldn't be able to do anything with it right so uh, he said well he said why don't we buy it and i said what do you mean buy it and i said well he said he said we'll buy it we'll offer to buy it from corona they don't want it they don't want the liability right i said well what would we offer him he said let's offer him 10 grand and a dollar ton royalty <laughs> i said i said well i said i said i never really thought about that Anyway, sure enough, we I called up Tony the next day. I said, Tony, look, we'll take that off your hands. But what? And he said, what do you have? I said, uh, 10 grand and a dollar a ton for royalty for anything we put through it. And he said, well, let me get back to you. Anyway, calls me back next day and he said, you got a deal. <laughs> I said, okay, that's good. So, so then, so we formed a company called Ming Minerals. We put 10 grand in each, uh, Sam and I. And we paid 10 grand to Corona. And now we own the mill and we owned the Rambler North property. And the government was requesting, asking for bids on the main Rambler property, which is where the, the ore zones were at that time. Although the Rambler North had these extensions on them, which, which was important. So of course we had, as Ming Minerals, we had the, the inside track on it because we had the right things together. 
And so we went out to Vancouver back and forth getting trips and, and Brian Peckford, an ex-premier of the province, uh, we somehow he was involved. Interesting, our company was called Ming Minerals Inc. Uh, based on Ming's Bite, which is very close to, uh, to the Rambler property. Uh, anyway, Brian Peckford was involved with a company called Ming Financial Corporation. Just, just happened. Nothing to do with us, but that, of course, it's B, BC, and they were, I guess they were raising Asian money stuff. So anyway, we did a deal with them where they put 2.2 million in to Ming Minerals to earn a 70% interest, and Sam and I retained 30%. <laughs> and anyway, so we, anyway, we, we then applied. I guess we. I guess we had the we had the rights by that time. The government had given us the rights because it made sense. You know, to give it to anyone else didn't make any sense because we were back in the same situation. We were in '82. Um, anyway, so we got it. 2.2 million. We had to refurbish the uh, the grinding bay, fix the roof, and and various things. Get permits, do this and everything. Our intention was to mine the Ming West deposit, which we did. We started off. Uh, so we started ninety. Four, I guess, something like that, putting it together. And we went down the old Ming decline and then just swung off that and swung over to the Ming West. And we mined the Ming West down to 360 vertical and we mined it back to surface and uh, about 150,000 tons. And at the time we made about 18, 18 million revenue, about 6 million of that was profit. 6 million was smelting refining, 6 million was operating costs. And anyway, uh, but at, then the copper price dropped from $1.20 a pound to 80 cents a pound. So what Rambler Mines did subsequent to that, uh, what they've done since uh, is essentially what we intended to do, which was to refurbish the shaft, go down the 1800 level, continue on with the zones at depth. And uh, the 360, the reason we stopped there, uh, price was one thing, but the tons per vertical foot weren't there. It was about... 30 feet long, maybe 10 feet thick. And you just couldn't, the value of the ore wasn't worth the cost of the decline, which is, that happens in these things. So anyway, we, we said, well, let's, what can we do? There's gold deposits around there. There was a part of a gold circuit at, at Rambler. So we tried, we actually refurbished the gold circuit and tried to operate, uh, tried to do gold. And we essentially blew our brains out. We, did, we didn't, we almost went bankrupt. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think the last the last month we operated, we lost lost four hundred thousand, I think, and that was everybody was saying, "Well, that's down quite a bit." I mean, well, yeah, but it, we don't have any money left; <laughs> we can't do any. So you know, we didn't leave any any big bills paying. Uh, we le we left some of the major companies with some bills, but none of the local all the local crowd got paid and stuff. So which was something we were glad about because it affects them much more. Some of the uh, I guess it was more the explosives companies and things like that. You know. Uh, anyway, bottom line is we closed, uh, and I, I, I still, at that point, Ming Minerals, I was still a part owner of. Uh, Sam's daughter uh, came to me with a proposal to take over the whole thing. By that time, she'd acquired the seventy percent. I still own fifteen percent. Uh, she'd acquired the Ming Minerals, uh, Ming Financials. 70% and uh, came to me and offered, you know, said, buy it. I said, so, well, what are you going to give me? Anyway, bottom line is I agreed to do it. Take, she take over the liabilities and I would get a half percent NSR. And, uh, and that's, that's the way it went. Uh, shortly after that, uh, 
the Altius, she did a deal with Altius Minerals and Altius and flipped it, well, formed Rambler Mines uh, and in with money from the UK and Rambler went in production. And uh, because of the half percent NSR, I've been getting NSR payments every quarter for about 10 years now. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that 10 grand investment wasn't bad. <laughs> and, and unfortunately, my partner, Sam, he didn't get to see the mine in production. He got killed in a car accident on the Trans-Canada uh, in 95, shortly before we, we actually opened. So he was the president of the company. I was vice president. And so I took over as president. And uh, I mean, that was my first and last experience at actual mining. Um, we had a good staff there uh, that really knew how to do copper, but we got into gold and we really didn't know what we were doing. We hired some people that didn't know what they were doing, obviously. And uh, anyway, so Rambler, uh, once once it got going, it's 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 been going for 10 years. They've got huge potential there. They, they've always had a bit of undercapitalization problems, um, but uh you know, they're, they're making it. It seems like they're, things are turning for them now and they're getting better. And like I said, it's, uh, they, they persevered through some tough times. And of course, with the copper price these days, uh, they, they're doing much more, much better than they were in the past. And do they, do they um, get a gold credit uh, now? Oh, yes. Yeah, they get, uh, there are a lot of their, I, I'd have to look at it again, but I get updates on this. They're producing Every quarter, uh, they're, they're not producing huge amounts, mainly because uh, their main, uh, they're, they're mining, I think they're producing about 1,100 tons a, a, a month now. And those, those uh, tons are mostly, um, uh, yeah, they, they, are, they are mostly lower grade. Their grade right now is about one and a half, 1.6% copper. And they're blending the high grade, which is the three to 4% stuff, which has the, the gold in it with a stringer zone, uh, which has much more ton, many more tons, but the, it doesn't have much in the way of copper or uh, sorry, silver or gold credits. Uh, but I mean, the point of it is they've got, they've got about 20 years reserves there uh, as they continue on down. And the upper stuff, uh, the high grade now is, is deeper but the low grade is, uh, is, I think they're 700, 700 feet down. So they're fairly close. It, it, you know, they're, they're, they've got to do some things and they're working on that. If putting, there was a, uh, a shaft called the boundary shaft for obvious reasons, uh, went to 1800 level. And that would have been, if they could have refurbished that in the beginning, kept that there. Uh, it had a hoist there. Uh, they had a crusher underground, which uh, when in 82, they took that out but I couldn't really leave it there anyway. But that's, I think the ideal thing is you, you go back to that 1800 level, you refurbish the shaft, you put a, a good hoist in there and you put an underground crusher. So as your high grade gets hauled there and goes straight up, you're not competing on that decline with the stuff up or up above, which is more where more of the tonnage is coming up. Right? So, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, really good mine in the sense of the, the grade the the ore there is uh, is it's it's especially the high grade i mean it's second to none i've never seen grades like that in in anything i had that we stopped on the 360 level like i said it was 10 percent copper across the whole face it was just spectacular anyway wow. that's life <laughs> yeah that's that's how it goes right yeah mm -hmm. 
The central milling uh, never took off? No, it, it, you could never, there was three, four companies involved. Uh, Corona, uh, the Nugget, Nugget Pond was Bytech, uh, Jim, Jim Wade, James Wade. Um, the was, uh, uh, who else was there? Oh, Naranda was involved with the, uh, with the stuff on the, on the Point Roos Peninsula there. Uh, so you had all these companies and, and I, everybody thought theirs was best. And I mean, you know, how do you do it? How do you, you know, do you batch the stuff or do you, whatever it is, and it never did go, but it, you know, at the same time, the two of those deposits did go into production, Pine Cove with Anaconda and, uh, uh, Bytech, uh, the, the Nugget Pond with uh, Richmond mm -hmm. and both made money. So, you know, uh, it, it, it shows that it's there. Uh, the Naranda one, Stoggertite has been mined a little bit by, uh, by Anaconda also, uh, and they are still mining in that area with the Argyle right now. So they are, you know, doing it. The stuff further out, Devil's Cove, as it's called, it's a vein type deposit. And they also have the Romeo and Juliet veins too on the uh, on that area on the Anaconda, and they're working on on things. They're narrow veins, so a little tougher to to mine with visible gold in them in the quartz veins. Right? Hmm. Yep. But it, the, the whole Bayward area is is really ripe, uh, and I, I just, I don't know, what a bit of an aside, but this is something to do. One of the reasons I was in the Bayward area uh, with Corona, Corona Corporation got in there in the southern, the Packet Harbor Group is the, is the Mafic Volcanic Unit that hosts the uh, Rambler deposits. But it's in areas where they have felsic volcanic associated, so which is typical for BMS in, in no style. Uh, Corona back in 80, I guess when I was in there, 87 option before I got involved with them, I was working with Corona in uh, New Brunswick at the time. And that was that period when I was left Newfoundland in 82 to 89, I was in New Brunswick. Uh, and they flew an airborne looking for VMS stuff on the southern part of that packet harbor uh, and didn't really didn't get any indication of VMS or volcanogenic massive sulfide rambler style things. But they did find once they got on the ground, found some good gold mineralization, um, a vein called the brass buckle vein, particularly is, is one <clears throat> which is actually on my property uh, now. Um, and it's a narrow vein quartz pyrite vein, but it runs like 200, 250 grams per ton. I mean, it's it's huge and a lot of visible gold in it, but it's massive pyrite and quartz. Uh, really neat little thing and take it about 25 meters long. It's had a bit of drilling on it, but, uh, and not really successful drilling, but I mean, it has to go somewhere. There's, there's at least some of it there. Associated with quartz porphyries and contact with Mafic Volcanic. So again, not a bad geological environment for it. Uh, anyway, uh, one of the things that when I got involved with Corona in, in 88, we decided to do a regional till survey over the Packet Harbor. And, and we used Overburn Drilling Management as the company that would do the gold grain counts for us. And we developed this huge till anomaly, which I mentioned in the, in the last segment there. Mm -hmm. And took 17 years, took me 17 years, because I ended up, once Corona left, I acquired the ground and, and kept working at it with option, got options to various companies over the years. And anyway, uh, we, we uh, traced it back in 20, in uh, 
in 17 years later and now have this zone called the SB zone, which is one claim over the source of that, of that till anomaly. But there was another little till anomaly in that area. And it was four samples uh, that were over 10, gram, 10 grains of gold and they were in a line. And in 1992, uh, this is after Corona closed, I said to my and first year that I was working where I wasn't getting paid by Corona, I, uh, my I said to my daughter, I said, I'm going to go over and prospect that area because that part was, was crown land at the time. I said, I'm going to go over and prospect that area. I said, because I think there's something in that area. And I've you know, never been there. She was 16. I said, would you like to accompany me? Go over with me. And she said, okay, dad, I think I'll do that, you know? So anyway, we took off and we went over and we stayed in the old Rambler, uh, Rambler staff house, which, which was still standing at the time. It's been raised since. And the first day we went in and we were going around looking at this. In this area, there were 10 samples, let's say 10 till samples, 10 to 15 grains of gold. Background was probably one or two in the area. So it sort of made sense to look along that area. And uh, anyway, we... we I think on, we'd taken a few samples and everything, and we hit this cut line that had been turned out had been cut in 1988. And we're walking up the line. There was a bunch of trees had blown blown over, subsequent to the line being cut. And underneath it was this boulder, a rusty boulder, quartz quartz boulder with rust all through it and stuff. Anyway, I put my pack on a stump and I walked over and smacked it and looked at it. And I smacked it again, looked at it, and said, "That's visible gold, right?" Anyway, I said, passed it to my daughter and I said, Chrissy, that's uh, my daughter's Krista, but I call her Chrissy. I said, Chrissy, that's visible gold. She said, Dad, that's visible gold, right? Well, you wouldn't, but there were thumbnail sized pieces of visible gold in this quartz, in this quartz boulder, right? I just, I did a, my daughter was 43 yesterday. Oh, and wow. I just, this morning before I came out, I did a, a story on that because I found some rocks the other day where she had written PD seven was the was my sample number for that and she de she'd put P and brackets and daughter seven. <laughs> so I I, photo, I found those the other day when I was looking for something else and I said I'm gonna I must uh, anyway I took a picture of it and I took a picture of the visible gold and one of the better samples and I sent it off to her. I haven't talked to her since but. Uh, I was talking to her the other day. Anyway, the bottom line is we found that. I said, we've got to stake this because it was crown land. So we spent the next day. I don't think we started that day. I think we started the next day and it was raining and we were both in rain gear. And I was going ahead where that time was ground staking. So, and it went across the Gull Pond Road, which is south of Rambler. And we went east from the road and it, we had to go 1.2 kilometers on the north side and 800 meters down. It was six claims. It was what it was. So 400 meters per, per claim per side. And anyway, we started on the road, went over, went down, we came back. And as we went across the road, uh, she, I was going ahead blazing the trees. She was coming behind, putting flagging tape on. And the mosquitoes and the flies, I mean, it was... <laughs> It was, it was one of the hardest days I think I've ever spent in the field. Anyway, we, we got to the thing, went across a little bog and I cut, cut a claim post there. And daughter said, uh, Chrissy said, well, dad, we should quit now. We we'll finish this tomorrow. And I said, you know, that's a good idea. And I had to take my hands. I had to take my fingers and pry them off the axe. Because, I mean, I wasn't used to doing it, right? So we went back to the staff house. We both had real hot baths and sat in there for a while. And then the next day we finished it off 
and then went back to uh, and then drove back to St. John's through a through a terrible storm uh, across the isthmus here down in, down the Avalon area here. Anyway, subsequent to that, I went in and followed it up, and I did find the Chrissy Zone I, on the other side of the on the east side of the highway. And it, uh, I had that since '92. I optioned it to Rambler uh, about year '20, and uh, they uh, they had to put a mining lease on it. At that time, you couldn't extend it past year '20. They put a mining lease on it. They had it for three years. Really, didn't do a lot of work on it, and you know, unfortunately, uh, they were going to drill it, never did. Uh, it was drilled once with Silver Spruce from the companies I was associated with uh, in uh, what were we in the in the I guess the probably early early uh, 2011 2012 something like that mm -hmm. and uh, and we, there's some good intersection there but there's two 80 meter long zones Boudinage zone and a shear zone two 80 meter long zones with good mineralization up to five six meters wide quartz veining and good values and things. Wow. Which is now anyway. The bottom line is I couldn't keep it because it was three grand or 35, 30, 35 grand a year or two just for the, the cost of the uh, of the mining leases. So it's gone back to the government and it hasn't been opened yet. It's still it, they, they haven't opened it for staking yet. So when it does get opened, it'll get some interest, I'm sure, especially from some of the companies around there. I think it's chance for probably 20 or 30,000 ounces, at least what's there now. I, and I, I, if it's boudinage this way, it's probably boudinage down dip tubes that the drilling makes difficult to, I, I think there's some potential there down the road. So uh, anyway, that was the, that was the only thing that I could really say that I've actually found myself without working with a company. Uh, that was all, that was all me looking at it using company data. It was interesting because 1988, uh, junior company had been in there <clears throat> and done and put the grid in that resulted in these trees falling over uh, and they they had uh, mapped the that area you know by walking the lines right afterwards and then they had a big windstorm in 89 by that time they were gone <laughs> so in eight, I don't think any would have anyone would have missed it if they uh, if they that you know if if it had been fallen if the trees had fallen prior to that but if the trees hadn't fallen there's no way you would have seen that boulder and that just goes to show how difficult it is on these things right anyway bottom line is they had done geochemistry and the geochem showed high you know 200 300 ppb gold to the east of the road which is what I followed up and I found the zone I could pick up the zone coming along in in outcrop so. It, it wasn't difficult once you did that, right? But they they had run out of money. Typical thing in '88. That was a tough year, and uh, ran out of money and didn't get a chance to do the follow up. So they'd done all the preparatory work. So anyway, it's uh, that's that's the story of our lives, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I know that it gets expensive holding the the claims yeah. after a while. Yeah. Um, do you have a picture of that? Um, the the core the sample that your daughter took still yeah i do yeah yeah that's why i say i sent her a bunch today i can i've got some really good samples of that i mean it was a the I, the boulder was probably two three foot by one foot or one and a half foot i mean it was a big chunk of rock now is if you go there it's getting all all uh, mossed over now but i mean i know i still know exactly where it is because we had a baseline in there the baseline was, wasn't very far off the baseline in the, on that grid and we reutilized that grid a number of times we cut it and stuff but uh, 
Yeah, I mean, there's some interesting, there's intersections there, like a meter and a half of nine grams, that type of stuff. So, you know, it, uh, it needs more work, but anyway. When it comes open, I'm sure there'll be lots of interest. So <laughs> now, now it's online staking. Yes, that's right. Yeah. And when did it switch to online from ground? See, you know, that's a good question. Uh, it's been quite a few years now, but uh, it certainly wasn't in place when Boise's Bay was on the go. So in the early 90s, I would say is probably after 2010 around that time, something or the late, late, uh, the late 2000s, you know, mm -hmm. in that range. I mean, I'm sure I could figure it out exactly, but I, I you know, it's, it's in the midst of time now. <laughs> I think the online staking really uh, was to the jurisdiction's advantage during COVID because all, a lot of people were able to participate that otherwise wouldn't have been able to. Um, I'd never encountered uh, online staking before. They've got a great system. Oh, is that right? Okay. Well, it seems to be the way to go these days. And, and it, there was concern, great concern. It's actually when I was president of the PDAC, that was one of the big concerns that uh, prospectors had. Uh, I remember I was invited to a, a meeting of the Pros Porcupine Prospectors and Developers Association in Timmins one time and that's essentially what they wanted to do they wanted to you know because pdac was saying look we support online staking and here's the reasons because it allows this and everything else but there were a lot of people at that time that were making huge money out of staking rushes uh, because it had to be ground staked and uh, and there were people that was their full-time job was staking claims and they were very very concerned about it um, as it turned out, uh, we luckily we had, and this is Ontario was after uh, Newfoundland in, in transferring over to online staking. Um, and uh, luckily in Newfoundland, I had talked to most of the prospectors who did, and, and most of the guys that did this on, did the ground staking uh, before I went there. And we'd had it in for two or three years. And I, and I said to the guys in, in, in Timmins, I said, look, guys, I've talked to in Newfoundland wouldn't go back to the old way because it's so much easier. They wasted so much time, so much money acquiring the ground by the ground staking. Don't need to do that anymore. That money can now, they can, their time and energy can be put into prospecting the, the properties that they get. So, you know, it, it, it was a bit of a rough, a rough ride that time in Timmins, but uh, anyway, it, it, it ultimately, I think, I don't think anyone would go back to the way it was. And that's, it, it's an archaic system. Uh, it, this is so much easier defining your properties. It was always a difficult thing, knowing where the property lines were when you were staking. Uh, you, there was always little holes. And technically, then how do you handle those and things? And that could really make a difference, especially if a mine is right in that area. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. No, it sounds like you... Um you see the more advantage than disadvantage over the online. Oh yeah. I don't think this, like I say, any, any jurisdiction, I think that has it. Uh, I, I think, I don't think anyone in working in that jurisdiction would want to go back to the old system. Mm -hmm. um, the, the problem is with it, it comes down to, uh, it does come down to computer savviness. It yeah. comes down to ability of having high speed, uh, high-speed Wi-Fi as opposed to uh, this places in this island still have uh, have low speed, have dial-up, 
you know, well, you know, there's no way you could compete in situations like that for, for a thing. And it's the only way you can stake. You have to stake online. So, you know, that does bring up some concerns. Uh, but usually that only happens in a uh, in a staking rush situation. And I mean, problems like we would have in central Newfoundland and have had uh, with staking around the Newfound gold stock. Yeah. Um, because you get so many people going for the same piece of ground, you can actually crash the systems. So yeah. you know, that, that's a difficulty, right? I heard, I heard about that um, the system had crashed uh, sometime a couple of years ago or something like that, but everybody was going, going, going after all the projects. So yeah, um, yeah. It, that ground it, is, the ground is still not all open yet there. And the, ground, the government is gradually uh, opening it up again. Okay. And uh, so far, I don't think they've had any problems. So, you know, hopefully that that uh, will come open soon because that's that is prime ground. Uh, that's ground that uh, Sean Ryan originally had okay. and he dropped it to go into more specific areas. And most of that ground is owned by Labrador Gold because okay. he's involved with that. So, um, yeah. So, I mean, it it. It, but the, the he dropped it mainly because well he had done the original work there and then a company called Torque had gone in and optioned it from them they did some work but their their work was I don't think their heart was ever in it <laughs> they uh, they were working I think they're mostly up north somewhere now but um, their follow up was by biogeochemistry which you know it wasn't prospecting it wasn't things like that. They had some good anomalies and stuff. And I am sure that's some of the ones that uh, Lab Gold is probably following up now. Is biogeochemistry when you test plants? Yes. Yeah. In this case, it would be probably spruce, spruce tips and things like that. Right? Okay. Yeah. I've never, I've never participated in that. I've heard about it. It's really early stage stuff. It, it, well, it isn't. It isn't. Uh, I, I know of instances. I actually in '92 again. One of the jobs, first jobs I had, was actually working with Gwendy Hall and uh, Colin Dunn of the GSC. They had a project around the Rambler area to look at uh, how how what the waters were like uh, and the uh, the biological part of it. Did it, you know? Could it show? Could it show the Rambler deposits and stuff? <clears throat> so they asked me, <laughs> I got, I, I went over and spent a couple of days with them, showing them around because I, I'd known them be, uh, from, I don't know where I knew them from, but anyway, I guess I knew them from somewhere and uh, spent two or three days with them going around. And then they said to me, look, I want to make an offer now. Do you, would you work with us for a couple of weeks? We get two choices. We either hire you for a couple of weeks or we use a helicopter for some of this stuff. <laughs> so that means you're going to have to go into some pretty tough areas. And I said, well, I'm 92. I wasn't that old. So I said, well, no, okay, I'll go work with you. And that's what I did was take a lot of these uh, samples. And I think it did show uh, areas of it. The biggest problem was the Rambler tailings uh, are there and they're, they're not covered by water. So you will get dust off those. So the dust of the tailings, which was essentially <laughs> copper, <laughs> gold, <laughs> silver, and <laughs> stuff like that, was blowing uh, everywhere. So you were getting a lot of uptake on that. Uh, that wasn't uh, that wasn't that you know wasn't typical of, of the thing. It was it was man made as such. Right? But uh, yeah, I think it did it did do it. And I know Colin Dunn uh, worked once he left the GSC. Worked with a group out in BC, taking samples at the top of the trees, flying on with a helicopter, taking it. And they actually identified a massive sulfide deposit and drilled it. Wow. Using that. 
So, wow. so it is it is something that can be used. Right? Yeah. 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 One of those those things in the toolkit, right? Yeah, that's right. Um I um we're doing it again where we talk a lot. <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna have to yeah. keep this up on a regular basis. <laughs> I, I wanted to talk. I wanted to uh, to show. I have a I have a card. Oh wow, that's a good one. <laughs> that's very nice. <laughs> I, I love them. Uh, I don't think people don't. Uh, we talked about this uh, off camera uh, and off record. I think last time we talked about kissing the cod. Um, it was recommended that I come up with a, a catchy title for the podcast. Um, which I think I did, um, that would intrigue people. Uh, but it's a it's a custom in, in in Newfoundland and Labrador, and I wanted to come up with something that fit the place. Right. Uh, so, you know, do you want to explain it? Because nobody, <laughs> I, I'm thinking people from away aren't really familiar with it. And I thought, I no, uh, and and it's interesting because we just went. I think I was telling you last week we did have this. Uh, rehearsal dinner at our place for about 70 80 people and outdoors and uh, one of that was uh, this was uh, my wife's cousin's daughter marrying uh, a guy from uh, Philadelphia uh, she had a basketball scholarship to University of Delaware and he was on the University of Delaware team also so of course he and his family a lot of the American uh, crowd were in uh, were in Newfoundland and they were at this uh, reception party. And one of the things they set up for them was a screech in. And a screech in uh, is, is a uh, thing that is used to welcome, uh, come from aways as we call them, or CFAs to Newfoundland. Uh, Newfoundland Labrador as the pro pro province is known. And uh, it consists of a number of things. First of it consists of uh, saying a number of things that you have to do. Uh, and it, it starts off with things like, the, uh, uh, do you want to become a Newfoundlander? And, and, and you're supposed to respond, deed I do my old cock, long may your big jib draw. <laughs> and, 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 then, and then part of the other, of course you have to drink, a, you have to take a shot of screech and you have to kiss a cod, or if you can't find a cod, as I think I mentioned to you, you can pick a pick the back, kiss the back end of a puffin. <laughs> so all of which are good Newfoundland things to do. Uh, the other night in uh, at a, in our backyard, uh, the cod that the lady had that was doing the screeching was pretty getting pretty gross. And I think I mentioned before uh, the week before out in uh, Sokoman, we had our AGM out there. We had a couple that hadn't been screeched in before, including a guy from New York who's a director of ours. And, and same thing, we had a lady come in, do the screech in, and she had a pretty rank cod too. So I think that one you just showed me would be would be much more, would be much better for it. Although, yes, although although not real, you know. So yeah, I don't think I don't think it's valid, right? <laughs> no, no, probably not. No. But I'm sure people would like that a lot better than the one they get to have. But yeah, once you do that, you get a the government has put out this thing, order of screechers, they call it, and they sign it, whoever does it sign it on such and such a date you actually became an honorary newfoundlander so 
it's uh, it's an interesting cu uh, custom. It's interesting that a, a lot of people in Newfoundland think it's belittling and uh, don't like it and say it doesn't it doesn't really do what we should be you know what we should be doing for the province and representing the province. My own feeling now. I'm a CFA, so <laughs> this doesn't necessarily go so far. But uh, I, my feeling is it's 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 all a bit of fun. Uh, the come from aways uh, enjoy it. Um, the interesting one, one of the best places in St. John's, and it's a bit of an advertising, is Christians, and uh, uh, it uh, the guy that uh, used to do the guy that passed away a couple of years ago, uh, the guy that did that going around the world, visiting different places and that. Um, he came here and he got screeched in there. And uh, interesting how how the, how the people like that, they really appreciate, uh, it, it's not so much because you, you get the history, you get the history of the, of the island as part of it. And I think that's what's really, really, uh, uh, really the important part of all of this. So yeah. I, I think it's a good thing to do. And I think everyone who comes here should do it. And you come to St. John's, you go on George Street, and there's lots of places you can get it done. <laughs> yeah. I, I think, uh, first of all, sometimes we take take ourselves too seriously, and we forget to have fun. And it's it's a nice way of coming together, right? It is, yeah. yeah. It, it, it's not poking fun at anyone. Uh, it, it's, I, I, I don't think I've ever run into anyone that, that has been screeched in that hasn't enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah. So, well, you get to feel like it. Like you're part of the place, which is which is the intent, right? That's right. And, yeah. and my view is, you know, respect local custom and tradition. It's uh, it's there for a reason. Yeah. Um, I'm I'm looking forward to uh, St. John's this year. <laughs> <laughs> well, I tell you, that's it's the way to do it. Uh, and of course, in, uh, just a little bit of a side here too. I mean, the reason that uh, the uh, Broadway play or the the play yeah. that was done on the Gander situation is called uh, Come From Away is because of that. That's where that comes from. Because if you're not from here, you're a Come From Away. And uh, I've lived here all pretty well most of my life anyway, and uh, I'm still a Come From Away because I wasn't born here. <laughs> oh, okay. But uh, yeah, but it 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 is at that type of thing. And and really, when 9/11 uh, happened and all those planes landed in Newfoundland. Uh, mainly in the Gander area, but also St. John's, Stephenville. Uh, it's the those people. Uh, if you talk to most of them, they would. They re while it was an unplanned stop, they 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 were made so welcome, uh, and they enjoyed it so much uh, that uh, a lot of them have come back since. There's there's people have come back here to get married. There's people who have come back to just to see people again that they met while they were here. And uh, and and it's very for those that haven't seen it, I'll put a little plug in. Go see "Come From Away." It's uh, it's on in Broadway until uh, I think October, and then it's finished. So there are still traveling exhibitions. They're all over the world right now. They're in Australia and things, different traveling parts of that. But if you haven't seen it, go see it because it's a it's a really good uh, good good story. Yeah, it's, I remember. I remember it on the news. All the planes that landed and uh, the beautiful stories people had. Scholarships were set up by yeah. people for uh, to give back, and um, just speaks to the beautiful people uh, in in a beautiful place of the world. And yeah, yeah I'm I'm happy to be um, getting to meet 
and share stories with a lot of people like you to others and uh, um and and, and i'm trying to, to learn some of the sayings <laughs> some of the jargon what is jargon yes yeah i was in Toronto at PDAC and Gary Lewis uh, came up to me and said something. I can't even remember what he said. I was absolutely, I had no idea what he said. So yeah, yeah, well, we, well, the, the shortest, uh, well, one of the things we have here, it's another little thing here, but the, one of the shortest uh, discussions between uh, fishermen. You yeah. ever heard that one? No. Okay. It's just a, one fisherman going one way, going down towards the water and he's another fisherman coming back up. Guy going down the water, you know, it's iron. The guy coming back up and says, Narn. That's it. <laughs> and what does that mean? Iron? Are there any fish? Oh. <laughs> and the guy says, Nar, Narn. No, sorry, there's no fish. But I mean, two words, wow. the whole story. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And thank you for your time today, Peter. I've, I've no enjoyed problem. it. We have to do this again. I'll, I'll give you a break and um, maybe later in the season we can chat about how things are going. And um, thank you so yeah, I'd much. I'd love to. Yeah, I'd love to. I think, like I said, this these type of things, I, I don't know how, how people are doing. I assume these are on YouTube. Are they too? Uh, yeah. yeah. Anywhere that you get your, your uh, podcast, Spotify, everywhere. Okay. And, um, and yeah, we're going to start pushing them out more as yeah. well. But it's, um, I'm really, there's so many great stories, so much happening there that people don't know about that. I just hope this helps. Sure. Yeah. We, we have a folk festival on the go here in St. John's this weekend. That's the 46th annual folk festival. It's in Bannerman Park, which isn't very far from where I live there. And uh, we get a lot of people in from outside on that too, from uh, CFAs as we call them. <laughs> you know, so uh, yeah, I just hope it's a good weekend. We're getting rain today, but we needed it. It's been two weeks or so since we've had any rain. Everything was drying up pretty badly. So you know, but, uh, yeah, we're having a good summer. So I encourage anyone that hasn't been here to come and see us, and uh, we'll go from there. Oh, I, I'll be there. <laughs> good. I'm sold. Well, thank you again, Peter, for joining us. And, and thank you to everybody for joining us at uh, Kissing the Cod. Uh, please come back and see our next guest. Uh, they're wonderful. Thank you. Thank you, Peter. Thank you.